This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. 20 years ago, the world unified after the terror attacks on 9-11. President George W. Bush's approval rating was high, NATO invoked Article 5 in its charter, and the Queen of England ordered the Star Spangled Banner be played. But the unity was brief. Soon, the White House launched a war on terror that bred distrust among Americans that still exists today. Brian Knappenberger is a documentary filmmaker who covered the fallout from 9-11. So much anger came out of that. So much hatred and fear came out of that day that it led us to make all of these these decisions later that that ended up failing us and not making us safer. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion was held by the Aspen Ideas team. For Brian Knappenberger and journalist Garrett Graff, September 11, 2001 changed their careers. They knew it was a watershed moment for the nation and felt compelled to report on what happened next. Knappenberger went to Afghanistan and made his first documentary, turning his lens on a small village leveled by an early U.S. bombing campaign. Graff followed how the American government reacted to the terror attacks. Both say political leaders in the United States made serious blunders. Graff wrote a book about 9-11 and hosts the podcast Long Shadow, which examines lingering questions after the attacks. Knappenberger is the director of Turning Point, 9-11 and the War on Terror, a docuseries on Netflix that highlights why America was attacked, the intelligence breakdown that allowed the attack, and how decisions by the nation's leaders have led to problems today. They're interviewed by Vivian Schiller, the director of Aspen Digital at the Aspen Institute. Here's Schiller. You know what we're what we're talking about today is not so much. You know, we just we're just past the 20th anniversary of of 9/11, and there was a lot of discussion, very much of it very moving, and you know, always shocking about what happened on that day, and um, which all of us, of course, remember so vividly. We're, today, rather than that, it seems fitting now that we're past the anniversary, not to talk about so much the events of September 11th, 2001, but to talk about the legacy of September 11th, 2001, because it, it's profound. And, you know, Brian, you know, you, you have said that your, your framing for your documentary is that modern history can be divided into two timeframes before 9-11 and after 9-11. And, and Garrett, in, your, in, in, in some of your writing, um, you wrote the events of September 11, 2001 became the hinge on which all of recent American history would turn. Um, so that is, there's a lot to get into and, and, and I'm eager to get into it, but I, I want to start by asking you um, not so much your historical perspective, um, but a very personal question, which is um, where were you and what did you experience when you got the news uh, and, and, and which news did you get first? Um, Garrett, I'll start with you. 
Uh, sure. So I was a college student. I was in college in Boston. And I was eating breakfast in the dining hall when uh, a friend came by. It must have been around 9.15. And uh, said that there had been two planes that had crashed into the World Trade Center. Um, and uh, I was a reporter for the college newspaper at the time and spent the day you know, doing the local reporting around the issue. Um, and I remember running down to the newsroom of the newspaper, um, and I must've gotten there a little after 10 because the, uh, I walked into the, um, the conference room where that, you know, there was a TV on with the news and I could only see one tower and I was so confused about like what was the camera angle that they were showing where the one tower was blocking the other tower and then finally someone explained to me that actually one of the towers had fallen and i just remember you know what do you mean like the tower fell like how is that possible like that doesn't make any sense um and then i you know an hour or so later i remember exactly where i was standing when i saw the first photo of Osama bin Laden and the first reference to this thing called Al-Qaeda. And I remember, again, being so confused because I had never heard of Osama bin Laden and I had never heard of Al-Qaeda and I couldn't understand how everyone on TV seemed so sure that this was the guy who had attacked us when I had never even heard of him. Um, and when I talk about the day, when I sort of talk about the day in my work, um, I always try to come back to that experience, not because I have a unique 9-11 experience, because I actually think I have a uniquely boring 9-11 experience, um, but that that is indicative, I think, in the way that we sort of mistell the history of 9-11 now, as we sort of talk about it as this discrete event, um, four flights, begins at 8.46 in the morning, the whole thing's over 102 minutes later, with the collapse of the second tower, there was the Pentagon, there was Shanksville, there was um, the Twin Towers. And yet, you know, for any of us who were alive that day, that's not the day that we experienced. And the day that we experienced, you know, we didn't know when the attacks began. We didn't know when they were over. We didn't know how many attacks there had been. And we didn't know what came next. And, you know, that fear of what might be coming on Wednesday or in October or 2002 it is so important to understanding all of the dark decisions that the U.S. government made after 9-11, which is um, sure it's something that we'll, you know, we'll come back to talking about in a minute here. Brian, I'll come to you in a second. But Garrett, you know, one of the things that I've heard you say on your podcast and elsewhere that I find so interesting is that those 17 minutes between when the when the plane hit the first tower and the plane hit the second tower were the most interesting moments of the day because so many people, right, thought that it was some kind of accident or a small plane, just say a word about that, because yeah. it so reflects the confusion about that day. Yeah, so this is, um, the, the, that 17 minutes, 8.46 to 9.03, to me is always the most interesting moment of 9-11, because you see just how innocent a country America was that Tuesday morning, sort of just how different a country we were that morning you know we were not a country that was conditioned to terrorism we were not a country that where people were uh afraid of being in public spaces and 
that you see in those 17 minutes sort of everyone have this same sort of collective shrug and you see you know new york city commuters continue to pour into new york city and sort of keep going to their uh desks you know you see people in the south tower in the world trade center just sit there and watch the the burning fire across the plaza in the north tower you see, you know, people on Capitol Hill. Um, I quoted my book, Brian Gunderson, who's the um, majority leader of the uh, the chief of staff to House Majority Leader Dick Armey that morning, and he says, you know, I thought it was going to be like a bad school shooting, the type of thing that dominates national news but doesn't actually change anyone's day. Um, and even the National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice and, um, and and President Bush, they sort of have the same reaction, huh? What a strange accident. Let's wait and see more. And Condi Rice goes on into her 9 a.m. staff meeting and George W. Bush walks into that classroom in Emma Booker Elementary School. And you just see like this country in those 17 minutes that is completely unrecognizable to us now in terms of sort of where our instincts go, where our fears go, um, and sort of what the, the type of country that we have now become since 9-11. And we're going to come back to that, the kind of country we have become. But Brian, um, let me turn to you. So mm -hmm. tell me about your experience that morning. I have a, a uniquely boring experience, too, <laughs> similar uh, to what Garrett was talking about. I, I was in Los Angeles at the time, and somebody called me very, very early uh, you know, uh, in the morning and said, you got to turn on the television. And I turned on the television and watched, and I think I saw the second uh, plane, plane hit. And... Um, you know, I was just, um, I was, I was mesmerized by it. I, I, I was basically just so drawn into it. I probably didn't leave the screen much for, for about a week. I, I was, um, uh, so, um, uh, I, I guess I had a similar thought to, to a Garrett had thought, who, who are these people who are, uh, you know, as this sort of name starts surfacing Osama bin Laden and the word Al Qaeda, I'd never heard that before. So it's, um, you, you know, you're starting trying to figure out and put the pieces together. I remember at one point going out to a restaurant um, uh, to, to, to get some food and somebody had taken a big, one of those big old tube TVs that you never see anymore and put it on the bar and the whole restaurant was kind of uh, huddled around it. It was a worldwide, you know, certainly all in the United States, but worldwide um, kind of event where everybody's trying trying to figure it out. I was immediately compelled. I wanted to make. I, I wanted to dig deeper. I, I knew that. Um, I knew that our country had changed dramatically, and I knew that uh, this was something I needed to. That I was. I was drawn into my, on a personal level. That, that this would sort of change um, the trajectory of what I was doing, what my work would be, um, and so I. Um, I immediately started. Uh, I was interviewing people. I wanted. I was. My first intent. My first thought was to go to, uh, to go to immediately to New York. Um, but instead, I I ended up going uh, to Afghanistan right after the sort of initial fighting died down, and uh, made one of my very first films. And I was I was still there actually on the one year anniversary of 9/11 in Afghanistan, uh, which became a film uh, called uh, Life After War, and uh, eventually was a was a uh, on PBS Frontline, um, but it was such a massively transformative period of time uh, being being there in in Kandahar for me personally, and just understanding what was going on with that country. That um, ever since that time, I'd wanted I wanted to complete the circle and go back and and, and figure it out. But um, 
and 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 chart the war, which I think ultimately was uh, one of the most uh, underreported wars in in United States history. So, um, I guess that's a short version of it. But the the uh, it, it was something that I, I you that that one of the main characters in that film said that um, it was like the tectonic plates of history were were shifting, and uh, w- and uh, that we were you know we were kind of going we wanted to be right there where those those plates were were grinding most forcefully. You know, it's it it's interesting. You both say that your your experience that morning was rather boring, and yet for both of you the events of 9-11 really shaped the trajectory of your careers. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, it, Garrett, your books and, and podcasts and articles and speaking, and Brian, of course, your extraordinary filmmaking. Um, you both have some pretty harsh judgments about um, the role of the United States and the impact on the United States and the world uh, in the years coming after 9-11. Um, Garrett, in your recent story in The Atlantic, you said the United States as both a government and a nation got nearly everything about our response wrong on the big issues and the little ones. So talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah, you know, I've spent most of these last 20 years, as you said, covering um, 9-11 and how it's changed our politics and our government. And it is a a uh, major point of uh, three other books that I've written even before I wrote my 9-11 history. Um, and it, it's really striking now looking back um, that we, I think, got almost every aspect of the war on terror wrong. Um, that uh, we uh, misidentified our allies. We misidentified our enemies. Um, we at home, uh, you know, unleashed, a, uh, a, a series of political forces that are sort of quite dark and, and tragic. Um, and then, you know, in, in some ways, uh, you know, as someone whose background is primarily in covering federal law enforcement and intelligence, um, the part that is most tragic to me is how we got our quest for justice wrong um, and, you know, that we uh, compromised our morals and our values along the way. Um, and, and, you know, here we are uh, 20 years later, uh, and, and I think, you know, our country is uh, less free, uh, more morally compromised and more alone on the world stage than we ever have been. And that's uh, particularly awful when you look at the grand arc of where 9-11 began, you know, this incredible moment of global unity, uh, of national unity. I mean, President Bush's approval ratings in the 90s, um, NATO invoking Article 5 of its charter for the first and only time in its history, an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, you know, the, the morning after 9-11, the, the queen in England had her band play the Star Spangled Banner at her sort of morning parade, the first time in 600 years that the band uh, had broken with the tradition of its sort of morning, uh, you know, uh, UK um, patriotic music. And to start from there and to sort of end up where we are, um, uh, I, th- I think is awful. And, and you know, I think it, it is impossible to, to understate 
how wide ranging the impact of those forces unleashed after 9-11 are. I mean, if you look in the United States, our, uh, the election of Donald Trump is a direct result of the politics unleashed after 9-11. Um, the insurrection on January 6th, um, you know, is stems from the anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, nativist, nationalist politics that uh, the Republican Party embraced after 9-11. Um, in Europe, Brexit and the collapse of the dream of a united continental Europe is a direct result of the destabilization of the Middle East that began after uh, 9-11 in response to the war on terror. So, I mean, this is, this is something that has had super wide-ranging negative consequences, not just for the United States, but the entire world. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, no matter where you live, what you look like, or how modest your beginnings. But how do you create access to that opportunity so people have a chance to discover their promise and reach their full potential? The Walton Family Foundation believes in the power of opportunity to transform lives, build strong communities, and protect a natural world that sustains us all. For more than three decades, the foundation has been inspired by those who never see a challenge without striving to overcome it, those whose inventions are driven by necessity, the dreamers, the doers, those who are closest to the problem because they are closest to the solution. Opportunity thrives in healthy environments. It withers in ailing ones. Opportunity should never be limited by geography. No one ever solved a big problem by thinking small. It's never easy to overcome difficult challenges. It takes time and steady resolve. One thing is true, everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Brian, how, how did we get this so wrong? I mean, it's not, you know, we've got, you know, the the, the actions of, of George W. Bush, but then we had eight years of Barack Obama, Trump, now Biden. How did this go so colossally? How did we squander that that momentary flash of, of goodwill, at least towards most? I think many brown people in this country would say it was never there from the you know from the from the first moments of 9-11. How how did that happen? How did that play out? Yeah. How did we become a weakened nation? Yeah. Well, in some ways, the series the, the series that we just kind of created kind of drills down on all the specifics, partly of what, of what Garrett just was just mentioning. Um, we start even before 9-11 and look at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, the, the, the CIA support of um, the Mujahideen during that, that period of time and this sort of proxy war against the Soviets, the rise of Al-Qaeda during that time, the collapse of Af Afghanistan into this bloody civil war uh, after the Soviets left and and our kind of stepping away from from supporting that country um, the increase increasing um, risk of terrorist acts by uh, on the part of al-qaeda throughout the 90s uh, as, as they as they sort of one after another things you know uh, East Africa bombings leading to the USS Cole bombing um, all, all the way up to 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 9/11 itself, and so we, we sort of look at that sort of back history. But you know, your, your question is how, what happens, you know, after 9/11. In particular, we're really uh, interested in, in 
essentially what you just asked, how, what happened after 9-11? There was no question we were coming together in this spirit of global unity at that moment. We all kind of felt it, but we also felt this growing kind of anger and desire and hunger for retribution that frankly scared me at the time. Uh, it, 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 I felt, I felt um, that it, it was taking on a very kind of different kind of um, face uh, as well, as well as, you know, these, these sort of stories we were hearing of, of us coming together. So, um, you know, the, the decisions that were made after that, um, are pretty dramatic. Um, you know, one, we, we look at two major, two, two major parts, um, that we look at are, uh, the enhanced interrogation techniques program, the torture program, um, and we try to tell the story of how that was created, what was created, how Guantanamo Bay started, um, what happened, how, you know, what were, who were the people that were initially brought to Guantanamo Bay? Were, what were those decisions made behind the scenes that, um, that justified, however thinly, the, the, uh, the, the, the actions, the torture that was done at, at that period, during that period? Uh, we look at that and we look at, um, the, the way that has sort of um, America's standing in the world suffered as a result, I think, of that. We also look at uh, mass suspicionless surveillance uh, programs, programs like Stellar Wind that came into uh, right after 9-11, um, came in, uh, you know, these sort of um, mass sort of dragnet surveillance programs that were also kind of um, seemed to be at odds with constitutional protections like the fourth amendment or uh the five foreign intelligence surveillance act things like that so we we we, we unpacked those decisions um that were very very secretive uh at the time and and uh conscientious people inside the administration came forward we started learning more about this stuff um and but i think a primary um uh a, a primary set of decisions that that led to this moment that of hyper-partisanship and kind of where we are now is the war in Iraq, this pivot from Afghanistan, which when I was there was a very optimistic place. Uh, you know, again, I was there one year uh, on the one year anniversary of 9-11. And um, I felt it, it was a, it was a period of, of, of building, uh, you know, I, I think there was a very palpable sense that, that Afghan citizens were sick of the Taliban were, were uh, largely saw them as this oppressive, Kind of force, and uh, we're glad to be rid of them. And the uh, the sort of swift driving away of the Taliban, um, uh, and the and the thinking that that was the end of the war, um, and then this this pivot of uh, military gear and uh, attention and uh, resources to the Iraq War, uh, that a country that seemed to have no connection to nine eleven. Um, that seemed that in which there were doubts about weapons of mass destruction right from the beginning, uh, in which there were doubts, very strong doubts about whether or not there's any terrorist activity or Al Qaeda connection to Saddam Hussein. This desire and drive to war, which seemed uh, questionable to so many people, uh, and ultimately was a disaster, that really un uh, eroded a lot of the institutions and, and uh, trust in government, media that we. Uh, that we are, that are, I think, driving, fueling some of what Garrett just talked about, this, this kind of, um, this reaction. So, um, so we go with, you know, in some ways that is, that is a, a turning point in the, in the war on, on terror. So um, 
we we un- unpack all of that and try to and try to and to try to look at that uh, step by step these decisions that were made um, that that did lead to that were that that were failures all as Garrett just said just failures all along the way um, in, in the war on terror and and in particular um, as we found out more about what was happening behind the scenes how we you could compare that to what we were being told in public about this this is one of the great i think revelations of the afghanistan papers craig whitlock's research and, and work is um is that even officials at the highest levels understood that the war in afghanistan was a failure but the message we were getting in public was they were painting this kind of rosy picture of events that we were turning a corner that there was light at the end of the tunnel that our goals are being met so so this this all of this fuels this kind of growing distrust i think with government and with media and with all uh, for not pushing a little harder um that has led us to 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 where we are now brian one of the things that sort of strikes me even as someone who studies this and has written a lot about it is the more i sort of go back and look over these last 20 years sort of to me the worse the picture appears um you know you sort of forget about all these little things along the way um uh and 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 i wonder if from your perspective having done this huge sweeping history which I, i think is is such an important corrective to the way that you know, America goes about its geopolitics so ahistorically that, you know, we talk about 9-11, you know, as like, well, like, this is the day it started. Whereas, you know, what you do is such a good job of explaining is like, America had been involved in this story for a quarter century beforehand, and we just hadn't noticed as a country that we were involved. Um, I wonder sort of as you go back and look at this um, in the grand scale, scope of history like what did you learn in the course of your documentary that sort of surprised you um as you uh as you re-examined this history that you had sort of lived and reported on along the way yourself yeah um you know it's 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 a version of what we were, what we were just saying i mean what what does you know i think even if you were as I said before, there's, I think this is one of the most underreported wars, the war in Afghanistan in history. And I think even if you were paying attention to it, you got it in little pieces. You got little kind of revelations here, stories here, a little sort of point, pointless sort of painting of what was happening. The one of the striking things about just, just having this, uh, embarking on this ambitious idea of how, how does this fit in into the scope of history Um is just is 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 seeing how it all lays out and how it all kind of builds on each other and 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 the degree in which I think the thing that's so striking is that just the degree at which uh, people at nearly every, every level of government understood it was a failure. I mean, it was pretty clear, um, really. From um, I mean, the early part of the Afghanistan war. I think was successful. I think there was some uh, there was some strong moves made there. But by when you're when when you're in the 2004, five, six range, you begin you you start the beginning of a Taliban resurgence. The United States is mostly in Iraq. The the Taliban is coming back by 2007, eight. Um, they're ascendant. They're and 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 uh, and you can almost point to 
what we experienced a few weeks ago, the fall of Kabul, starting then. Um, this is a slow motion kind of um, taking over of the country that starts starts at that period of time. It goes very, very badly wrong. Obviously, the Iraq war by 2007-8 is going wrong. I mean, we've got two bad wars happening simultaneously, and our focus is split. Uh, when Obama comes in, um, he he looks at the the Afghanistan. We calls it the good war, and so he you know this is the war of uh, that uh, of 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 necessity, and so that's that's how he looks at it. Um, but really, it's clear um, right from the beginning, uh, from you know from high level officials, uh, you know from the Afghanistan papers and, and others, that they just really understood that this was failing badly, that the decisions that were being made. Uh, were contributing to that failure, that were ensuring that we might not be successful. And by the time you get to the surge, um, it, that becomes more and more obvious. And I think it's not, and it's not just these sort of um, what officials were say, saying in private. Uh, I mean, if you spend time talking with veterans and people that were there in, uh, in Afghanistan, in these wars, it seems clear to them right from the beginning when they when you know during the surge when you're talking 2010 11 12 by 13 you know this that none that this isn't working that it's a failure so when you when you sort of string out this this uh narrative and understand the i think the um the one of the benefits of history is understanding the the kind of um uh, you know, we did an interview with with uh, Gulbuddin Hekmetyar, and he talked about uh, the kind of emotion that he felt that they felt when the Soviets finally left. The the sort of um, swagger that they had, the 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 sort of uh, feeling that they had taken back their country, and and then and then the fact that that's how they feel now. And so, you, so you're 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 looking at this broad scope of of history, and you're. Uh, understanding not just the roots, but the but the failures that have been clear since two thousand five, five, six, seven. Um, that I think is the most striking thing. I mean, it it it's uh, I, I guess it's a it, it's not a, a singular kind of answer to your question, but it's the weight of those decisions over time and and how clear they were both to people at highest levels and um, veterans on the ground. And the way it fed, it fed into the to the the, the sense that Af Afghans had of themselves at that period, um, uh, that 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 really um, it's the cumulative effect I think of all that um, was surprising. Does that answer your question? I feel like it's a giant answer to a question, but it is the it is the level at which people understood this that this was a failure for the length of time. I think was was surprising, which I think is not unrelated to why we stayed for so long. That I, I think, like, you know, it, it, it. I really think that you know, fifteen years of this war was just no one could figure out how to get out of it, and knew that it was going to knew that we were going to lose, and didn't want that loss to sort of you know happen on their deployment, their assignment you know, their, their term, uh, you know, or their, you know, their presidency. Yeah, I, I think that's true. There, there is the old saying that, you know, we didn't fight a 20 year war, we fought 21 year wars, that every year, there seemed to be a new plan. Uh, of course, there's a huge turnover of troops, and that there wasn't a, 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 
a lot of or any real long-term thinking as to how or what the goals were and, and what it would mean to, to win this war. And of course, we see that playing out in the backlash to, to Biden's move to pull all the troops out and the tragedies that we're seeing there and the reaction at home, which is what I want to turn to in our, our just remaining few minutes of this podcast. I want to come back to the U.S. domestic uh, legacy of 9-11. You, you, you talked a little bit about this earlier, Garrett. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll quote, I'll quote you, I'll quote you <laughs> where you, yeah, from your uh, recent story, you said the tragic consequences, cynical choices and poisonous politics. Um, you write that the enemy we ended up fighting after 9-11 was ourselves. And you draw a line, you mentioned earlier, you drew a line between the events of 9-11 and Donald Trump and what we're seeing in the polarization in America. Say more about that. Yeah, and this is like, I think, to me, one of the parts of, uh, you know, this last week that it has been so hard is everyone's like, well, you know, we seem so divided now and we were so unified then. But to me, the two are actually very closely related, like the the polarization and the division that we have now is the direct result of the choices and the cynicism uh, of the way that we pursued this war on terror. Um, and you know, you see that in the Republican Party in the stoking of you know anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, you know, nativist, nationalist politics. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, comes to the fore on the back of the birtherism movement. I mean, the, you know, the, by 2008, you know, the attack on Barack Obama is, you know, this is Barack Hussein Obama, you know, the closet Muslim Kenyan, uh, raised in a madrasa in Indonesia, you know, sort of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of which of course is false. But, you know, I, I go back, uh, uh, you know, again and again, as I think about this to, you know, Colin Powell had that Meet the Press uh, segment in the fall of 2008 with uh, with Tom Brokaw, where he says, you know, hey, none of that is true about Barack Obama, but but that's the wrong question. The, the question is, so what if it was, you know, what what would why why is the fact that you might be a Muslim disqualifying to participate in American civic life. Um, and yet that was sort of the direction that um, we have seen the Republican Party sort of run away with over these last 10 years. You know, birtherism, you know, remember Donald Trump's basically first act as president is the Muslim travel ban, um, you know, which was thrown out repeatedly by courts simply because he was so explicit over the fact that he was just trying to ban Muslims from the United States, that there was sort of no other policy justification for it. And, you know, we look at our nation now as if who knows how we got this divided and this polarized. But to me, you know, it is exactly uh, the outcome of the political forces that we unleashed after 9-11 and sort of the demons that we created overseas and the demons that we embraced at home. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, uh, I sort of remain struck uh, 
by, you know, sort of uh, imagine the like different version of this war on terror um, where George W. Bush sort of looks at Al Qaeda and says what it is. This is a group of about a hundred people with an identifiable ideology and an identifiable leadership uh, who exploited identifiable holes in our law enforcement, intelligence, and aviation security uh, blanket to carry out their attack. Um, like this isn't a all powerful, you know, Bond style villain super army. Like this is a this is a crowded bus of terrorists that we need to take on around the world. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to throw three trillion dollars of American investment into uh, energy independence and renewable energy and weaning ourselves from the corrupt regimes of the Middle East that we have backed for too long. And, you know, just sort of imagine how different of a war on terror that would have been. You know, I, we were, I don't think we were ever close to that as the outcome. But, you know, like there was a very different path to the Al Gore that, version. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, though. <laughs> yeah. The Al Gore version. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that that's just that's so right. I, one of the uh, I, I think uh, votes that that had uh, that we bring up in the series that I think kind of clarify, you know, points to that a little bit is, you know, we interviewed Barbara Lee, um, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who. Uh, you know, right after 9-11, there's this, the AUMF, the authorization to use military force, which is a super open-ended um, authorization to use force anywhere in the world, doesn't name Al-Qaeda, um, it doesn't name a country, it just gives this kind of sweeping power, war powers to the president, which is typically, you know, that's, that's, that's what, that's the job of Congress to, to okay wars. Um, this is um, this is unanimous? This goes through Congress unanimously um, through the Senate, and uh, and Barbara Lee is the single uh, dissenting voice in that. She's the, she's the only um, vote against uh, the AUMF, and her position is uh, that this is this was a horrible attack. She feels the emotion as much as anybody, but uh, leaders at those moments should, should have the calmer heads, should try to, 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 um, and, and to, and to try to chart the, the best path forward, uh, with this, but, but we should be responsible with it, uh, that, that overwhelming military action is not going to, uh, do anything to stop terrorism. Um, and, and she gets death threats. She gets a uh, lots of death threats. She gets, she's 60,000 or something. She was telling me, uh, some, some, massive amount of hate mail. Uh, a lot of anger is directed at her, but uh, she's right. And she was the singular voice that kind of saw this and, and understood this, uh, which is why I wanted to interview her. One of the first people I reached out to for this project. Um, and so, um, yeah, the, the, so much anger came out of that. So much hatred and fear came out of that day uh, that it led us to make all of these, all of these decisions um, later that, that just, that 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 were were fail that ended up failing us and not making us safer, um, and so and the other thing is I think that this the war, this is one of the reasons why Garrett's uh, piece in the last twelve minutes of our of our uh, series is so good. I mean he points out 
all of the ways in which it, uh, back to this idea that 9-11 was this sort of hinge of, of history, that uh, it changed, you know, brought us the home Department of Homeland Security. Um, it changed, uh, you know, our airports, the way our architecture. Uh, it brought a lot of that Homeland Security money home and uh, which fueled the kind of militarization of our police forces um, around the country. Uh, this was this was a day that changed us in, in ways that we just couldn't have foreseen back then. Um, and so that was, you know, I think I think we're still feeling its effects. A lot of the effects we didn't really know. I mean, that this also came at a period of time in which the internet is exploding. We're communicating in different ways. I don't think we really understood or grappled with the idea of surveillance uh, of internet communications and, and what that that parallel fear and technological change was going to do do to us. I don't think we still understand some of that, but um, it, it's clearly. Uh, you know, we're still clearly grappling with how 9-11 changed us. As we as we wrap up, you know, uh, Garrett, I, I, I heard you say on the air the other day um, that that 9-11 with this 20th anniversary, 9-11 moves from memory to history, which I thought was very interesting, particularly because one generally thinks of 20 years as a generation. That's sort of the classic measure of a generation. And the people that are coming of age, the young people who are coming into positions of leadership, either, well, or maybe were born, but certainly not uh, of an age to really understand what was happening. How can those who were not around, who did not experience even, you know, that, that, that moment where the world changed, um, how can they think about taking this legacy as they come into positions of leadership around the world, the legacy of 9-11 and what, what, what should they take forward uh, as 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 nine eleven moves deeper and deeper into history, as uh, uh, for this country, yeah. Um, and you know this is this I think it really is a very poignant twenty year mark. I mean, when we look at those thirteen Americans, the twelve uh, Marines, and one uh, U.S. sailor who were killed in Kabul um, during the pullout, uh, you know, only two of them were old enough to have been out of diapers on 9-11. Um, and the you know idea that these wars have been going on so long that they are now increasingly being fought on both sides by people who were too young to remember the catalytic events of the, uh, of the war um, is a really striking and, and sad moment. Um, I, I think that this is a real the question that you asked, Vivian, is a real tough one because I I don't know how much America can really put any of this genie back in the bottle twenty years later. Um, you know that uh, I think we are going to be reckoning with the challenges that nine eleven have injected into our political and civic life for a, a very long time to come. Um, you know, not the least of which are, is the like literal actual, you know, bill from this war. Um, you know, the, the, the Pentagon estimates that the payments, the healthcare costs of war on terror veterans will peak in 2050. That you know that the the healthcare costs of this war are going to continue to rise for the next thirty years, even though we are now you know effectively out of Iraq and Afghanistan. 
Um, I mean, this is going to be a, a, a real, you know, century long um, challenge that we have to sort of overcome, uh, overcome this. Brian, I wonder if I could um, ask you sort of one more question about your series. Um, you know, as we look back at these last 20 years, um, you know, this is a moment when we really begin to take stock of a lot of historical figures and their legacies. Um, and I wonder sort of as you were doing your work and interviewing these people and looking at the record, um, whose opinion, you know, who did your opinion most change about? I mean, either sort of positively or negatively um, as you were going back through your project, like who, who really changed the way that you thought about them? Um, well, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, the, uh, I think part of what we try to do is understand um, the reasons behind some of the decisions that were made. So um, I, I wouldn't say that it went from negative to positive. It might've gone from negative to still negative. <laughs> I don't know if it changed, but it was interesting to, to, um, you know, I, I didn't want to just only sort of criticize the, 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 the decisions that were made or what, what was, what happened. Uh, I, I wanted to understand why those decisions were made. And so, um, there was an effect of going back putting your placing yourself back into that those moments of that day and the fear of that day and um and understanding why um people were scared you know if you talk to people i mean your book does this so well it, talking to such a broad range range of people both in administrations and people that were victims and stuff um and, and, you know that's that's I, I think similar to what we tried to do but when you talk to people um in the fbi who were trying to investigate you know united 93 we talked to jacqueline mcguire um dale watson um people that were um uh, alberto gonzalez i mean we 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 I, I tried to have some space of of getting into their mindset to see what what they were thinking and why that there was a real fear, for instance, of a second wave that, um, you know, I think maybe we kind of forget about, about that, but there was, there was a real, uh, high on the list of priorities was this cannot happen again immediately. So, so how do we do that? So a lot of decisions were made in the fog of war, as Andrew Card says in our, in our piece, um, or in the fear that came after 9-11 that, that, that led to this. And I wouldn't say that necessarily changed it, but it made it more my opinion of their leadership or my opinion of the, you know, them as historical figures, but it did help understand, it, it helped give context and, and purpose to, to, to what came later. E even if what came later was, will not go down in history as, uh, 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 you know, we'll go down history as some of the biggest mistakes, you know, we've made as a country, I think. Well, um, Brian and Garrett, unfortunately, we're out of time. This is such a fascinating conversation to understand how the threads of 9-11 continue to reverberate through every aspect of our life today. Thank you for shedding light on this. And um, thank you for your your documentary work, Brian, and your uh, and your writing, um, Garrett, you contribute so much to this dialogue and I look forward to further conversations. So thank you, uh, thank you for being here with us. Great, thank you. And thanks everybody for listening.
Brian Knappenberger is an award-winning director of documentaries, including Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press, and The Internet's Own Boy, The Story of Aaron Schwartz. His latest project is the Netflix series Turning Point, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Since the U.S. announced its exit from Afghanistan, Knappenberger has helped get 10 people out of the country. Garrett Graff is a historian and journalist. His book, The Only Plane in the Sky, The Oral History of 9-11, is a New York Times bestseller. Vivian Schiller leads Aspen Digital at the Aspen Institute. She's the former president and CEO of NPR. Their conversation was held September 13th. Check out the show notes for a link to Graf's recent article in The Atlantic and the trailer for Turning Point. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me with help from Ava Hartman. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.